17th century author John Bunyan. How many of you have ever heard of John Bunyan before? Will you raise your hand? If you've never heard of John Bunyan, I would encourage you to grab his book, Pilgrim's Progress. It is one of the greatest Christian works ever written. And John Bunyan wrote it in 1678 is when it was published. And he, John Bunyan was a tinker by trade. Uh, he made his living repairing pots and pans. He hardly had any education beyond learning to read or write, but he wrote Pilgrim's Progress, one of the most beloved books of devotion in the English language and one of English language greatest literary treasures. It's the story of a journey of a man named Christian to the celestial city and his adventures on the way, the things that he encounters, the, the people that go with him. It's a walk through the journey of life. It's a road trip. And Bunyan's vivid imagery Powerful imagination and spiritual insight have helped millions of Christians throughout the ages and inspired some of the most famous modern Christian authors in the 20th and 21st century. It is one of those books that on every page there is a great quote. I mean, every page, if you were highlighting the great quotes in, in Pilgrim's Progress, you'd highlight something on every single page. But one that I want us to hear this morning, this quote is from Christian as he comes to what he calls the hill of difficulty. So Christian is journeying to the celestial city and he comes to the hill of difficulty. And here's what he says, this hill Though high, I covet to ascend. The difficulty will not me offend. For I perceive the way to life lies here. Come, pluck up, heart. Let's neither faint nor fear. Better, though difficult, the right way to go than wrong, though easy, where the end is woe. This whole quote, and in fact the entire book, rings with the theological doctrine of the perseverance of the saint. A doctrine that teaches that a truly born-again Christian, even in the midst of a life of trial and difficulty, will persevere to the end of their life pursuing Jesus. If you've truly been born again, you will not abandon the faith. You may backslide, you may struggle, you may have periods where you are barely moving, right? Where you have fallen in the mud and you're just slugging along. There's a difference between struggling at the hill of difficulty and abandoning the faith and abandoning the climb altogether. It is the climb. Some of y'all got that. It is the climb. However, we have to discuss the foundational principle that girds up the doctrine of the, pres of the perseverance of the saint. 
If we as Christians are going to persevere to the end, it will be because we are kept safe by God from abandoning the faith. The journey, the climb up the hill of difficulty, which is our life, is not an undertaking that God saves us and then sends us on our way and hopes that we make it. The, the perseverance of the saint, the fact that we will persevere to the end if we're truly born again, has its foundation in the, the The girding, the, the uplifting, the pushing of God. We persevere because He preserves us. He keeps us. He who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it. So as we read verses 11 and 13... As we work through this, we are going to see Jesus praying a prayer of this very doctrine to the Father. He desires for His followers to continue in the faith, to persevere to the end, to make it to glory, to get to the celestial city. And He knows that they will not do that, that we will not do that unless the Father keeps us. This is the beginning of Jesus in his high priestly role of interceding for his followers to the Father. You do know right now Jesus is sitting at the right hand of the Father praying that you will not quit. Yes. Amen. Jesus is praying to the Father. And he's saying, Father, work in this one so they will not quit. Don't let them stop. Hold them, keep them. The whole time the accuser of the brethren is throwing stuff at us. And Jesus is saying no one can bring a charge against God's elect. Amen. And he turns to the Father again and says, keep them. He prays for you this way. And it starts right here. Jesus first prays. I am no longer in the world, he says. Now, this means that his current earthly mission was coming to an end. The cross, the resurrection, the ascension, just days away. And he would no longer be with his followers in the flesh. That's why he says in verse 11, I am coming to you. I am no longer in this world. My physical being here with the disciples has come to an end. I am no longer in this world. I'm coming to you, Father. And though Jesus will no longer be in the world, they would be in the world. And the world would be hostile to them. The world was not going to throw their arms around the followers of Jesus, and embrace them and think they are wonderful. They were going to be hostile to them. Every single apostle gave their life 
for Jesus. Except John, that church history tells us, was boiled in oil, came out unscathed, and they just sent him to the island of Patmos because they were like, we can't deal with this. This dude's got to get out of here. And of course, that's where God gives him the book of Revelation. Once Jesus leaves, the hostility that was on Jesus is now going to be redirected toward the disciples. Jesus knows this. He's saying, I'm in the world. I've been in the world. And this hatred and this vitriol, it has been bent toward me. But now I'm leaving and coming to you, and they're still going to be here. And all of this hostility that has been toward me is now going to be redirected to my followers. Jesus told them in John chapter 15, verses 18 through 20, If the world hates you, know that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world. Does that not go back to what we've already talked about? But I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember The word that I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you. And now Jesus is praying to that end. He's saying, I know this is now coming for them. And I'm not going to be with them anymore. But not only is Jesus concerned about the world's hostility toward the disciples and those that would believe because of their testimony, but he's also concerned about the worldly influence that could take place on his disciples, the the, the worldly temptation to the flesh that his followers were going to be dealing with, the corrupting influence that it might have on them. As the writer of, of this gospel, John, writes in his first letter, do not love the world or the things in the world. And Jesus knows, listen, I'm going to be gone. And and this world, not only are they going to have hostility toward them, but the, the nature of this fallen world is going to try to influence them to become corrupt. To not live holy lives, as Brother James is going to talk about next week, to, to not live sanctified and set apart. Here you can just, you can feel the heart of Jesus. Right? You can feel it. It's Jesus saying, I've been with you, Father. I mean, I've, I've been in the world with them, and I'm not going to be with them anymore. I'm not going to be in the world, but they're still going to be here. And it's going to be hard. He is truly concerned for his followers, knowing that he will not be with them anymore. John Calvin says this on this part of this verse. He says, it yields no small consolation to us. When we learn that the Son of God becomes so much more the earnest about the salvation of his people when he leaves them as to his bodily presence. For we ought to conclude from it that while we are laboring under difficulties in the world, he keeps his eye on us to send down from his heavenly glory relief from our distress. Aren't you thankful that Jesus, knowing he was going to leave and not be bodily with his people anymore, comes to the Father and says, you've got to keep your eye on them. And that's what he goes to next. He says in verse 11, given his concern for his followers, he says in verse 11, Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me. 
This sounds like a plea of a parent who leaves their children for a short time entrusting them into the care of somebody else and they say, keep them safe while we're gone. Like, we're leaving, keep them safe. Or, or it speaks to a, a, a young newly married man who must entrust the safekeeping of his bride to his parents when he goes off to war and he says, as you've loved me, love her. Keep her until I return. This is, the, this is the attitude that Jesus has here. I'm leaving. I'm going to be gone. Father, keep them until I come back. Keep them until I'm with them in the body again. And I, I love what he calls God here. Jesus calls God what? Holy Father. Now, yes, this speaks to the transcendent purity of God. Right? The word holy. But it also speaks to that family dynamic between the son and the father. This isn't just anybody praying this prayer. This is the one and only unique son of God praying to God the father. God, father, please keep our people. As Brother James said last week, when Jesus prays for something, it will be according to God's will and it will be answered. If Jesus prayed to the Father, Father, Holy Father, keep them. That will be in accordance to God's will, and it will be answered with a yes. So as Jesus is praying for that for us now, as he's praying to the Father, Father, keep them, preserve them, Move in them through the power of the Holy Spirit to persevere to the end. God the Father will always answer that prayer with yes. Every time. Every time. That is the guarantee that we make it, church. The guarantee that we make it is that Jesus is praying for us and the Father is always going to say yes to the Son's prayer. Remember what Jesus, Brother James talked about this last, last week when Peter comes to Jesus and Jesus says to Peter, the devil has asked to sift you like wheat, to destroy you, but I have prayed for you. Which means he doesn't get to destroy you. Because this ain't just anybody praying for you. This isn't your brother praying for you over here. Right? This isn't Andrew praying for you. This isn't James or John praying for you. The Messiah, the Son of God, who's going to be at the right hand of the Father. I'm praying for you, Peter. And I love, what he, I love how Jesus says it. He says that the devil has asked to sift you like wheat, but I have prayed for you. So when you have returned. It's not up in the air. He's not like, and so, so if, you, if you come back and if you make it and if you repent. No, it's. So when you come back and when you make it and when you repent, encourage your brothers and lift up your brothers. This is what we're talking about when Jesus prays to the Father. When Jesus prays, keep them. The Father says, you got it, son. I'm going to keep them. I gave them to you. I ain't going to let them get loose. And he says, not just keep them, but keep them in your name. Remember two weeks ago when we talked about when Jesus said, I have manifested your name to them. The name represented all that the father was in character 
and attributes. And that Jesus was the perfect manifestation of the name of God in the flesh. So he's saying, keep them in accordance with your name, your character, and your attributes. So when Jesus prays that the Father would keep them in your name, he is in essence praying that they would remain true to the revelation of God that he has given them. So what it means to keep them in your name, keep them, Father, true to the revelation that I have given them of who we are. What God is like, what his nature is like, what he is in his attributes. Keep them loyal to that. Matthew Henry says of this phrase, keep them in the knowledge and fear of thy name. Keep them in the profession and service of thy name. Whatever it costs them, keep them in the interest of thy name and let them be faithful to this. Keep them in thy truths, in thy ordinances, and in the way of thy commandments. When Jesus says, keep them in your name, all of that is wrapped up in it. Jesus says in verse 12, while I was with them, I kept them in your name. I manifested your revelation. I kept them faithful. I kept them focused. I kept them ministering. I kept them where they should be. I have guarded them. While I've been here for three years, I have guarded them and not one of them has been lost. This echoes what Jesus says in John 6, 37 through 40. All that the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. What is the will of God the Father, according to that verse? That every single person that was given to Jesus would be kept safe and raised up on the last day. Jesus says, I have come to do the will of him who sent me, and this is the will of the one who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me. Church, Jesus, God the Father, and now in the power of the Holy Spirit, will not lose one of his people. We had a guy here a few years ago. God loved him. And I loved him. Was trying to convince people that we could forfeit our salvation. That we could lose our salvation. And eventually he left this church because we would not budge on what we believe is once saved, always saved. That's the way the Baptists say it, you know, once saved, always saved. It's really the perseverance of the saint or the preservation of the saint. We would not budge. And we would not budge because of Scripture just like this. Jesus comes to do the will of the Father and then fails? Does that make any sense to anybody in this room? That God the Father has this will to save the people that He's going to give Jesus. 
Jesus then says, I've come to do the will of the Father. I'm going to die and save those that He gives me. I won't lose anything of that He gives me. And then the Holy Spirit comes along and regenerates all those hearts. And at the end of the day, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit lose tons of people they were trying to save. And at the end, God just looks at it and says, well, we just couldn't get it done. I mean, we tried. You know, we tried to save these people. That makes no sense at all. And I believe that our, our brother knew the Lord and I believed he loves Jesus and I just believe he is dead wrong on this. Jesus will not lose any of that which the Father has given him. And now Jesus is saying, I'm going to take those that you've given me. I've guarded those that are with me now for three years. I'm going to go to the cross and die for them. I'm going to get resurrected for them. I'm going to ascend to the Father and intercede for them. Keep them and keep all the ones after them. So that I will raise them up on the last day. This gives more meaning and light to Jesus' words in John 10, 27 through 29. My sheep hear my voice. I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish. And no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all. And no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. What this means, well, let me ask you this question. I've asked it to the, the youth upstairs. I don't know if I've ever asked it in here. What's the guarantee that tomorrow morning when you wake up, if you are truly born again, that you're going to love Jesus? It is not your free will. It's God. It is God moving and working on your will so that when you wake up tomorrow morning, you will love Jesus. It's not that God just backs off and says, let's just see if they're going to love me tomorrow. No, what he does is he works in such a way in your life and in your heart that when you wake up tomorrow, you will love Jesus. It is guaranteed because we're not putting our trust in how much faith we have. Don't put your faith in your faith, church. That will let you down so quick. It's not the amount of faith, it is the object of our faith. And because the object of our faith is Jesus, the power of the Holy Spirit has been sent in us. And tomorrow, when we wake up, we are guaranteed to be loving Jesus because of God. What a great promise, what a great comfort to all of the followers of Jesus. We will believe tomorrow, no matter what difficulty was today or tomorrow. Of course, you see here, there is one. He says, and I have lost none except for the son of destruction. Now, who is that? That's Judas, right? I haven't lost one except for the son of destruction. And then he says, but that's so that the scripture would be fulfilled. Judas was never true to begin with. 
Jesus spoke of this in John 6, 64. He says, but there are some of you talking just to the twelve. Everybody else had left. He preached this, this big sermon in John chapter 6, and everyone leaves because they say, the sayings are too hard. We're out of here. He turns to the disciples, and he says, there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who those were who did not believe and who it was that would betray him. Judas was chosen to be part of the twelve, not for, not because God was going to move in his heart to believe, but he was going to fulfill a specific purpose, a sovereign purpose in the mission of Jesus. So do not think for a second that Jesus failed with Judas. He did not fail with Judas. Jesus is praying this to let the twelve know One of you is a son of destruction. One of you hasn't believed. But don't think for a second that I've lost Judas. That somehow I've failed with Judas. No, Judas is going to get out of here so that the scripture might be fulfilled. Of course, this great keeping that Jesus is asking God to do for the followers of Jesus comes with many different aspects. And two of those aspects are mentioned in the text. At the end of verse 11, it says that they may be one even as we are one. Jesus' desire for His followers in the Father's keeping is that those that are left in the world would be one and unified. Jesus knows that division would be an enemy to the testimony of His followers in the world. But make no mistake, Jesus is not praying for a worldwide denomination. In fact, the darkest times in church history have been when the church outwardly was most unified. Medieval era, for example. The most corruption has taken place when the outward appearance is we are one Denomination. We are one in these, this belief. And then we just corrupt it and mess things up. He's not praying for a worldwide denomination. Well, then what is he praying for? I believe Jesus is praying for a, uni- a unity of spirit so that Christians would cooperate in their mutual edification and their witness in the world. But church, be, listen to me carefully here, please. The church does not get unified by focusing on being unified. Say, that doesn't make any sense. If we're supposed to be unified, then let's focus on being unified. Never will happen. We don't get unified by trying to be one. We become one and are unified as each one of us is focusing on Jesus. We get unified when we're focused on Jesus, not when we're focusing on the unity and the oneness. We are tuned to one another by drawing near to the same Savior. A.W. Tozer wrote, So 100 worshipers met together, each one looking away to Christ. They are in heart 
nearer to each other than they could possibly be were they to come be unified in conscience and turn their eyes away from Christ to strive for closer fellowship. You get it? If we all come together and as we come in this room, our eyes are all fixed on Jesus. We are going to be drawn closer together as we are all focused on Jesus. But if we walk in the room and we turn away our focus from Jesus and our focus becomes on trying to be unified in fellowship, we're going to mess it all up. Here's why. Because every single one of you have a different idea of what that should look like. So if we all come in this room with a focus of we need to be unified, we need to be one. And then I went around and said, what does that mean to you? And someone said, well, I think we believe this and we say this and we do this. And then I go to the next person and they say, I think we say this and we do this and we believe this. And then I go to the next person. Guess what we're going to have? We're going to have 200 people who are all trying to get everybody to fit into their mold of what unity looks like. And then we mess it all up. Instead of everybody coming in here, focusing on Jesus, we will be much closer together when we do that. Now I'm about to get really, really real. Real, real, okay? So please, when Brother James and I have talked about the tendency is going to be for you to hear only part of what I'm saying and then tune out the completion of my thought. Please don't do that. Don't hear something I say and then get focused on that one phrase and not understand the totality of what I'm saying. This happens to pastors a lot. They, someone will hear one thing and then they'll come to you afterwards and they'll say, you said this thing and you're like, well, did you not hear my explanation of why? So please listen to all of it. The church has been plagued throughout its history. When someone says, that person can't really love Jesus because they believe this. Or, this person can't really be a Christian because they support that. The church has differed on all kinds of things, much less individual Christians dif differing from one another. There are people, I am on Twitter. I follow a lot of stuff on Twitter. I follow a lot of professing Christians on Twitter. I cannot tell you how many times I have heard people say something like this. You can't be a Christian and be pro-choice. Okay? You can't be a Christian and vote for a Democrat. I've heard it said. Usually weekly. Not by people in the church. Not in here. Now, do I think we ought to fight for pro-life causes? Absolutely. But I want you to stop and understand, if you think someone who is wrong on abortion can't be a Christian, we are about to eliminate Christians throughout history because Jonathan Edwards believed it was okay to own black slaves. Now I want you to stop and think with me for a minute. Are we going to say you can't be a Christian and be for race-based slavery? 
Well, guess what we've done? We've just eliminated Jonathan Edwards from being a Christian. We've just eliminated George Whitfield from being a Christian. We've just eliminated George Washington from being a Christian. You see what we start doing? Be careful. Be careful. Somebody might be dead wrong on something and still be a Christian. And that doesn't mean we don't fight for those things and we don't try to correct those things. In fact, do you know the reason why slavery ended in this country? Because other Christians took the Bible and properly interpreted and said, you can't walk in accordance with the gospel and walk out the fruit of the gospel properly and think you can own another person. W.A. Criswell at one time, as the pastor of First Baptist Dallas, was pro-choice. Did he lose his salvation or was he not a Christian? Now, my point is, now please listen, my point is, there is a whole lot of stuff that you could be wrong about and that doesn't mean you're not a Christian. You just may be dead wrong on something. I am pro-life from the moment of conception until the tomb. And I will argue it and I will fight it. I've stood out on the streets with signs. I have had used fluid thrown at me. I have been physically threatened because I believe in pro-life. So do not get it twisted here this morning that I, don't, that I think we just, then we just shouldn't fight for those issues. No, we fight hard for those issues. It's the reason why slavery ended in this country. Because we fought hard on those issues. But I don't want to turn around and say, well, then what that means is that those who were for slavery are just not Christians. Or those that are pro-choice just can't love Jesus. When we start doing that, we will eliminate so many groups of people that love Jesus. Y'all, you do realize we're going to get to heaven and find out we're wrong about stuff, right? Yes. Yes. I mean, I am 45. The stuff, there are things I believed at 20 that I do not now believe at 45. And I don't look at my 20-year-old self and say, that 20-year-old just didn't love Jesus. No, I love Jesus with all my heart at 20. I just needed to keep being sanctified. And I would never turn to my 20-year-old self and say, you know what the problem is? You just don't love Jesus. No, I was just wrong on some stuff. And guess what? If God tarries and I live to 85, there's going to be a whole lot of stuff at 85 that I look back at my 45-year-old self and say, yeah, you were wrong about that. But I know that I love Jesus right now. So we have got to be very careful that we don't arbitrarily pick certain things and say, well, if you don't agree with me on this, you just can't be a Christian. No, you can just be a Christian who's not thinking rightly about things. That's why Paul has to say, renew your mind. Think on these things. Get your mind right. It's not the heart. The heart's been renewed. It's our mind. 
And there's a whole lot of stuff that the mind of my 20-year-old self and the mind of my 45-year-old self totally disagree on. But it wasn't that my heart didn't love Jesus. Y'all get what I'm saying? Yes. Yes. So what Jesus is praying here is that he's not saying, God, I want everybody that loves me to just completely agree on everything. It's never going to happen. Now, it will one day. And you're going to find out that you were the one who was wrong on some stuff, too. And you're going to be like, oh, my goodness. And I told those people they wouldn't be Christian if they didn't agree with me. I was ranting and yelling and screaming on Facebook. Oh, my gosh. How foolish. Right? That doesn't mean we don't contend for those things constantly. But we better do it with some grace because you're going to need that grace. You're going to need it. I'm going to need it. So let's not be the ones running around. There has to be a sense in which we say these set of doctrines. These are the essentials. This is what makes somebody a Christian. Now, there is a bunch of other important issues and doctrines that we should contend for as members of Calvary Hill Baptist Church. But we can't be the ones that say, and if you don't agree with us on these things, then you're not a Christian. Because I'm telling you, we're going to get to glory and we're going to find out that some of those things we held really tightly were wrong. And so what we do is we cling to these essentials very tightly. I mean, we don't, we don't, but we die for these. But I'm going to tell you something right now. If someone puts a gun to my head and says, Neil, is your view of the end times right? I'm going to kill you if you're wrong. I'd be like, don't shoot me over that. I, this is what I think the Bible says. This is what I, I, I argue the Bible says. I ain't dying for that. Now, I'll die for this stuff. Jesus is God. I'll die for that. By grace, through faith, we are saved. I'll die for that. There are things I'll die for. But, but the church, throughout church history, has held this stuff really tightly. And then they've grabbed a whole bunch of stuff over here and pulled it all in and held that really tightly too. And you wonder why Christians are screaming and yelling at each other all the time, act like a bunch of fools. Right? Jesus is not praying, I want them to hang on to this stuff real tight too. No, what he's praying is, I want them to cling to me and look to me. Let me take care of the sanctification stuff. Brother James, we'll talk about it next week. Let me take care of the power of the Holy Spirit of getting people to look like me. And this other stuff over here, you better hold it with some grace. Then Jesus says in verse 13, and I pray you heard all of that. And not just part of that. Jesus prays in verse 13. Not only about unity and focusing on Jesus. He says, these things I speak in the world that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. This reminds us once again that Jesus is praying these words in front of his disciples. They are hearing his prayer, listening to what he's praying. 
They're hearing the deep intimacy between Jesus and the Father. They're hearing his prayer for the Father to keep them. They are hearing his prayer for their oneness and unity. And we are reading those same words today. The question is, what does it mean that my joy be fulfilled in them? In studying for this, I had about eight commentaries open. And six of them said it means one thing, and two of them said it meant something else. And I'm like, I hate when that happens. You know, I mean, I got these guys that I, you know, I, I really trust, you know, they're studying and they're seeking of Scripture, and now they disagree with each other. But I think the best argument was laid out by a man by D.A. Carson. D.A. Carson is one of the foremost New Testament scholars in all um, of the world right now. Because I think he does the best job of fitting this phrase, my joy be fulfilled in them, with the previous verses about the Father keeping them and the following verses about the followers being sanctified. He says, and I agree, that my joy points to John 15, 11, where Jesus' joy, like that of his disciples, for who he prays, turns on abiding in the Father's love, which itself turns in obedience to the Father. Here's what he says in John 15, 9 through 11. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. Just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in His love, these things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. So this seems to still be about the Father's keeping of them. What I think He is saying is the way to have the way that Jesus' joy is going to be fulfilled in the disciples, if the disciples stay obedient to God's command and abiding in the Father's love. As they stay obedient to God and as they abide in the Father's love, then Jesus' joy will be complete in them. Yes, they're going to have joy, but I think this is saying my joy is going to be fulfilled in them. So as you keep them, Father... As they obey you and as they love me and as they, they stay true to the name in which we have manifested to them, my joy is going to be fulfilled in them. I'm going to find great joy in them that they are doing what I'm praying that they will be doing right here. Yes, that's going to fill them with joy, but I think this is about Jesus saying, I am going to be filled with joy when I see them doing what I'm praying they're doing because you've kept them. My joy will be fulfilled in them. This is still all about the keeping of the Father. So let's sum this up. Jesus prays, I am not going to be in the world anymore. And these people that I love, that I go and die for, are still going to be here. And I can't guard them anymore. I can't keep them anymore. I'm not going to physically be here. Father, Holy Father, you keep them. You preserve them. You guard them. 
You keep their eyes on me so they can be one. You keep them abiding in our love and and obeying what we have taught them in our commandments so that my joy may be fulfilled in them so that when I look at them, I see that they're persevering to the end. God the Father is not going to deny joy from his son. By the way, you, you know how God the Father answers this prayer in the church age, don't you? It's the power of the Holy Spirit. God the Father and God the Son send the Holy Spirit to do this work. So, as we climb our hill of difficulty, we do so knowing that Jesus prayed and is praying that we will not quit on our pilgrim's progress. And that is precisely why we progress and not quit. Because the Father answers His Son's prayer for our preserving and perseverance. We, church, listen, please, we will be kept for the Son. As a bride being ordained for her husband to be presented without spot or blemish to the Son at the marriage supper of the Lamb. When it is all said and done, the church is going to be presented to Jesus by the Father as a bride that has been perfectly preserved and is beautiful. And God is going to take the church and say, this is your reward, Jesus. This is your people. And we will have the marriage supper of the Lamb. And we will look back at our hill of difficulty. And we will see that God got us to the top. But that struggle is behind us. And now we party. Right? Now we party. And we won't be partying going, man, I worked so hard up that hill. Look at what I did. This was all. No, we are going to party because Jesus and the Father and the Holy Spirit kept us persevering up that hill, preserved us to the end so that we are presented perfect and spotless to the Son. And the Son gets what he paid for. And I'm telling you, it's going to be a party. I mean, Go upstairs in the Ethiopian church. They don't, do, they don't do things like we do things. Go to Mexico. They don't do things like we do things. Go to the Philippines. And we're all going to be together. Some of us are going to have to learn to jump around a little bit more and wave our <laughs> hands a little bit more. You know, I mean, there's going to be... It, but it is going to be the greatest party that has ever taken place when God's people are presented to Jesus without one being lost because the Father has kept them the Son has paid for them and the Holy Spirit has converted them and brought them to new life I mean if that listen if this doesn't keep us going right and if this doesn't make you just want to like go outside and just run around a little bit or get in your car and just woohoo for a few minutes on the way home I don't know know however you get excited everybody gets excited differently but 
This should excite us. Jesus is praying for this. So there's no way it can fail. Thank you.